you would please, to the book of John, chapter 18. We're studying the Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning the 18th chapter. And as we're studying these last chapters in John, we're getting closer and closer to the time that Jesus goes to the cross. And in these times, Jesus is in the most stressful period of his life. And what we notice most about Jesus is how he reacts in this particular time of stress. And how a person reacts in times of stress is, uh, tells us a great deal about their character. At any given time, we have members of our church that are going through very difficult experiences, stressful, stressful experiences. And you can really tell what's in a person's heart by how they react to their crisis or things that come upon them unexpectedly. I heard this story about uh, some folks in a church who were worried about one of their members' reaction. This was a a very old man. Uh, He had a heart condition, and he just inherited $2 million, but he didn't yet know it. And so the church members were trying to figure out how they could tell him about this because they were afraid that he might have a heart attack. So they figured that the best thing that they could do was just ask the pastor to speak to him. Well, the pastor didn't know how to deal with it either, and so he just got into a conversation and sort of backed into it. And he said, "Uh, Brother Jones, let's suppose that suddenly you found out that you had inherited $2 million. What would you do with the money? And Mr. Jones said, well, pastor, uh, I haven't got very many needs. I I get along pretty well. Uh, I, I have just about everything that I want to have. So I suppose that if I inherited $2 million, that I'd just give it all to the church. And the pastor had a heart attack. (laughs) Today, I want to talk about your reaction to things and, and reaction to crisis. And really, this morning, I want to talk more about the reaction than I do your actions, because your actions are what determine your reputation. How you act in certain uh, periods of your life determine your reputation, but how you react to something is what tells what your true character is like. Now, your actions, you, you can be prepared for those things, but a reaction is something that happens on the spur of the moment. Uh, a reaction comes when, you're not expe- when something uh, happens unexpectedly, and how you react to things tells us something about your character. Now, I can plan my actions, as, I, as I've said. I mean, I, I plan what I was going to preach today. Of course, I did that. I plan what, I'm going to, what I was going to wear today. So I got up and put on a particular set of clothing. And you may plan the things that you do, your dress and your, your talk and your habits, and those help determine your reputation. But if you want to know who I really am on the inside, then you watch how I react when I have to slam on my brakes out on 101. That'll tell you what I'm like on the inside. A few weeks ago, um, I received this email from Lino Zamacona that I'd like to read to you. It says, a man was being tailgated by a stressed-out woman on a busy boulevard. Suddenly, the light turned yellow just in front of him. He did the right thing, stopping at the crosswalk, even though he could have beaten the red light by accelerating through the intersection. The tailgating woman was furious and honked her horn, screaming in frustration as she missed her chance to get through the intersection, dropping her cell phone and makeup. As she was still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on her window and looked up into the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. 
After a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping off the guy in front of you and cussing a blue streak at him. And I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker, the choose life license plate holder, the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker, and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. Naturally, I assumed that you had stolen the car. (laughs) How you react tells what you're like on the inside. Several months ago, I had the opportunity to find out a little bit about Larry Jefferson by watching him when someone broke in the line in front of him at Walmart. (laughs) That, That tells you what's on the inside. Well, in this story today, Jesus is under stress, He knows that he's going to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if we read about this same incident in the book of Luke, it tells us there that he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And in that moment, it was a moment of betrayal. And in that moment of betrayal, Jesus showed us how to stay calm and cool in a crisis because Jesus had everything under control. Let's read about that reaction in John chapter 18. I'd like you to stand with me, please, in reverence for the reading of God's word. We're going to begin with verse number one, John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, and these words refers to chapter 17, where we talked about the great high priestly intercessory prayer where Jesus went to his heavenly Father. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden, and that's the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, if we read about this in the other gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find that this is the time that Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father, and he said, let this cup pass from me. But he's in the garden which he entered with his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men, let me stop there. That word band can actually mean up to 600 people who may have come out with Judas. A band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees cometh hither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And we notice that the word he in your King James Version is italicized. That means that the word wasn't there in the original. So Jesus actually said, I am And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am They went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me. Shall I not drink it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word today. We ask you, Lord, to help us to see some things from these scriptures today uh, that show us how we ought to react and what kind of people we ought to be. May we have the right kind of heart, and may we treat others as we ought to. Lord, speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
How do you react in a time of crisis? I have three questions in the message today that I'd like to, to ask you. And we want to determine today the right kind of reactions. And I hope that you will learn something here. And you'll learn especially how you can learn to, to maintain your cool in a crisis. And in a crisis, you can decide that you're going to act like Peter or you may act like Jesus. The first question I want to ask you this morning, what do you do when a friend betrays you? Betrayal of a friend. Now, that's a very serious thing, isn't it? Today, uh, the name Judas is a despicable name. I have never heard of a parent today that names their child Judas. I've done a lot of baby dedications and been around a long time, but as far as I know, I've never heard of a parent that named their child Judas. Judas was one who, who proved to be a traitor, and he betrayed the Lord. But he was considered to be the Lord's friend. In fact, uh, the fact that he was a friend, I mean, that's the whole reason why we consider what Judas did to be such a despicable act. He's remembered by that because he was a friend, and yet he betrayed. But not only was he a friend of Jesus, but he was also a friend of all those disciples that accompanied with Jesus. Judas was among the circle of disciples. He went with Jesus where he traveled. He saw the many miracles that Jesus had performed. And even in some of the most intimate parts of Christ's ministry, Judas was there to see it all. And yet Judas was a person who had a very wicked heart. And in his heart, he planned to betray Jesus. He knew that Jesus was headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. That was a place, as the Bible says, that the disciples also went. I mean, that was sort of like a meeting place for them. So Judas knew that he would be there, and Judas came into the garden with this band of men, and there he betrayed the Lord. On that night, we know that Judas walked up to Jesus, and he kissed him. And that was a kiss of a friend. At least that's what you would think. Jesus said, friend, why are you come? And Judas kissed him. But we know that that was a kiss of betrayal. It was a kiss of death. Well, how do you react to such a dastardly deed as that? I mean, what would you do if the very same, same thing happened to you? Well, Simon Peter had a reaction. He was a hot-headed fellow, and in that very moment, he reacted in his flesh. He was mad at Judas. He was mad at those men who had come out to arrest his Lord and to take him away. He was mad enough that the Bible says that he drew out his sword and he started flailing away. Now, I want you to notice here Peter's reaction to the crisis. We're going to look for just a moment here at what was wrong with it. First of all, Peter fought the wrong enemy. Now, to Peter, it was Judas and it was those soldiers, those uh, servants of the priests who came out to fight. And his gut reaction was that he was going to lash out against them, not thinking about who it was and what was the whole problem here and what's behind it all. In, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible tells us who the real enemy is. It says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so the real enemy that we fight are not physical forces. It's not, it's not a, an enemy that we can actually see. The enemy that we're fighting is Satan. We're fighting against a spiritual foe. And Peter didn't recognize that. He wasn't thinking about that. And he didn't know that this battle that he was trying to fight was one that he couldn't win in the way that he wanted to win it. Next, we see that Peter used the wrong weapon. It was a sword that Peter pulled out. He was brandishing that sword menacingly, and he was trying to protect Jesus. But we know that the Bible tells us that 
our weapons are not metal swords. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it tells us that our weapons are not carnal, but they're actually spiritual weapons. The sword that we fight with is the sword of the Lord. It's a spiritual sword so that we don't fight with our fists. We don't fight with our hands. We don't throw, sti- uh, throw sticks and beat people with, and, and throw stones at them. Our weapon is the word of God. Our weapon is spiritual. Our weapon is prayer. Now, if you fast forward... 50 days from the time we're reading here to the day of Pentecost, this time Peter knew to pull out the right sword because that time he pulled out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Peter preached a message. And on that day, there were 3,000 people who got saved. But in this particular instance, Peter pulled out the wrong sword. He pulled out a metal sword and he hacked away. And when he did, he left a bloody mess. Pulling out the right sword caused 3,000 people to find life. But here, Peter's using the wrong weapon. The next thing we see that's wrong with Peter's reaction is that Peter expressed the wrong attitude. He lost his temper. He was impulsive here. Now, we think about this. Why did Peter lose his temper? And as we think about it, we have to wonder, well, what was Peter doing just prior to this particular incident? What was he doing? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus had come to the garden and Jesus went away to pray. Peter didn't take time to pray. Jesus went off alone by himself. He left the disciples. He was praying and he came back. And do you remember? He spoke specifically to Peter, point blank at Peter. And he said to him, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? The disciples were all sleeping. Jesus went away and came back the second time. And when he came back, he found the disciples still sleeping. Nobody's praying. He went away a third time and came back. Same reaction. All of the disciples are asleep. So here we find that Peter was unprepared for this moment of stress. And so what he did, he jumped up from that sleep. And instead of doing the spiritual thing, what was right, he tried to fight flesh and blood and he used the wrong weapon. So he woke up mad and he started swinging that sword. James tells us, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Here's something we need to learn. When we're in a time of crisis, in a a time of stress, when things come against us and people try to hurt us, the thing that we're to do is not to lose our temper. And I might put it to you another way. Don't lose your temple. Don't lose your temper, but don't lose your temple. Because the Bible tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you get mad, you get angry, and that's your reaction, then you defile this temple of God, which which is in you. Now, some of you, I know that that's your first reaction. When things go wrong and somebody tries to hurt you, your first reaction is that you explode at them. And you excuse yourself. You say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm just a hot-tempered person. And so I get mad, I explode, and I feel so much better after I'm done. Well, sure, you feel better. You relieve the stress, haven't you? But what you do is you leave a big problem in your wake from that explosion. And this is why the Bible tells us that we need to react in a different way. Jesus did not lose his temper. He didn't respond in the way that Peter did. Now, notice Jesus' reaction. I put it on your listening sheet today. Jesus used divine restraint. Now, Judas or Jesus rather could have easily overcome that mob... But what was happening here in the garden was all a part of God's plan. Peter didn't pray to find out what God's plan was. 
But Jesus knew very clearly what God wanted him to do. And what he had was the will of God in his mind. So here was a friend who betrayed him. And we see his reaction. He approached the mob. He came out and he spoke to them. He didn't wait for them to come to him. And it says in verses 3 and 4, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things which should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? So Jesus comes out to them and he says, Who are you looking for, fellows? And there's a lesson in that reaction. Jesus faced up to the problem. He wasn't cowering back. He wasn't hiding from that. He went up there and he spoke with them. He didn't run from it. He faced them. He said, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's when Jesus spoke those powerful words. He said, I am. Now, I don't think that we really need to go back and rehearse the story all over again if we have so many times before about Moses at the burning bush. And God said to Moses, I am. And this is Jesus speaking the very same words. He is the eternally existent God. Now, John records for us what happens next. The other gospel writers don't tell us what happened after that. And I think that the reason that John tells us this, because we remember that the purpose of his writing this particular gospel is to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he truly is God. He's the one sent from God. He's God himself. And so John tells us exactly what happens next. Jesus said, I am. And then those 600 soldiers, soldiers shrunk back and they fell to the ground. John 18, 6 says, As soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Why did they fall back? You know, I've read that verse many, many times before, and I really didn't think about this whole reasoning until we started talking about a few weeks ago about the glory of Jesus being, being veiled by his flesh. Why did those men fall back when Jesus said, I am? I think that Jesus revealed some of his glory. At that very moment, they were able to see some of the glory of Jesus Christ. Alexander McLaren said, when he said, I am he, there was something that made them feel, this is the one before whom all violence cowers abashed and in whose presence impurity has to hide its face. And so Jesus said, I am, and some of his glory shot out. He catapulted some of that eternal glory that he had right towards those men. And they had no choice but to fall back. It swept them off their feet. The Apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation that when he saw the Lord, he said, I fell at his feet as dead. And that's the reaction when you come upon the glory of Jesus. So here is Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He spoke to them. He could have killed them all. But Jesus restrained his power. Peter pulled out that puny sword. He started brandishing the sword. He was trying to defend. Matthew tells us that that Jesus spoke to Peter and he said, put up that sword. Put up your puny sword, Peter, because don't you think that right now that I could call to my heavenly father and he could send 12 legions of angels to deliver me. 72,000 angels that Jesus could have called right at that very moment. You ever thought about how powerful that even one angel is? I don't really know, but I I do know this, that in the Old Testament it tells us that there was one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrians. Do the math on that one. You know what you come up with? 
72,000 angels could kill 13 billion people. Speak the word, Jesus. And I believe that those 72,000 angels were standing right there in heaven. They had their swords drawn. They had unsheathed them. And they were ready at any moment to come to the aid of Christ if he should so call them. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus could have unleashed Armageddon right at that very moment, but he didn't. Jesus gave his life voluntarily. That was God's will. And so Jesus was calm in this crisis. He restrained his divine power. Now, maybe there's somebody here today. You're going through a crisis. Or maybe somebody has hurt you. And what you could decide to do, you you could strike back. You could give back to them exactly what they've done to you. But that's not Jesus. That's not what he did. His character shone through in this crisis. Now, I want you to think about something for just a moment before we leave this point. When Jesus said, I am, his glory drove those men to their knees. In just a few minutes, we'll talk about this. But Jesus also performed a miracle right there in the garden. Now, we wonder then, with Jesus showing his glory, performing a miracle, then why is it that the mob didn't recognize who he was? Why didn't everybody in that mob believe on him right then? Why didn't they disband, go their way, and say, we can't deal with this because he truly is the Son of God? You ever thought about that? Why didn't they respond that way? Well, at that very moment, those men were without excuse. They should have done that. They should have disbanded the mob, but they didn't. And that shows us that these outward displays of miracles, the things that Jesus did, by themselves, they're never enough to convince a person that he's truly the Lord. And you know that's reinforcement of the doctrine that we preach? And that is that there's nothing that will bring you to Jesus Christ except the Holy Spirit calling a dead sinner to life and enabling him to believe the gospel. Miracles don't cause people to believe. Speaking in tongues and doing all these other kinds of things that people try to do today, they will not cause people to believe. The only thing that draws a person to God is the knowledge and revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit opens him up so that we understand who he is. Now, the next question that I want to ask you, what do you do when an enemy attacks you? Now, maybe it's easier for us to deal with our friends Perhaps we could excuse the betrayal of a friend. We could go lightly on a friend. But what happens when an enemy betrays you? Well, that's a different story, isn't it? Let's look what Peter did. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Peter saw these guys coming. He took out that sword and he swung it. And the Bible says, as he did, he cut off this man's right ear. I want to ask you another question. Do you think that he was aiming for his ear? I don't think so. He's not Mike Tyson. He's not aiming for the ears. He's going to cut that fellow's head off. And what Peter had in his mind right at that very moment, he was going to deliver a splitting headache to that fellow. His head was going to come off. You know, it's a good thing that Peter was a sailor and not a soldier because he missed him. Malchus ducked. And when he swung that sword, he cut off the fellow's right ear. That's the human response. That's how Peter reacted. You come after me, I'll cut your head off. What you do to me, that's what I'm going to do to you. Now, let me very quickly here give you three levels of response. You can respond in, in different ways. And let's look at some reactions here. First, let me give you four levels of behavior. Let's talk about first the demonic response. A demonic response returns evil for good. 
The demonic response is to bite the hand that feeds you. Somebody does you a good deed, but that evil heart responds to that, and they turn that good deed against the person who tried to help you. Do you know that our jails are full of people like that? Full of people who did evil against people who tried to do them good. Just the other day, I was reading in the paper about a man who stopped because he he had a flat tire. He started fixing his tire, and he looked like he was helpless. There was another motorist that came along, stopped there to help that man change the tire. You know what that fellow did? He, he beat the fellow up that, tried, that was going to help him change the tire and stole his car. That's returning evil for good. And that's the way you could respond. But that is a demonic response. A second response is the dutiful response. And that's where we return good for good. The dutiful response says, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You treat me nice, I'll treat you nice. You show me goodness, I'll show you goodness. But do you know what Jesus said about that kind of response? He said, even the heathens can do that. They know as well to do that. that. That's a heathen reaction. Kindness for kindness, there's nothing great about that. That is a response out of duty. There's a third response. This is the revengeful response. And this is where you return evil for evil. You know, people say, well, I don't get mad. I get even. And some people are waiting for that time. They just want to get even. They're nursing a grudge. They've been harboring that grudge. And and they're just waiting for this opportunity to come along. When it comes, I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to get even. But you know, the scripture says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's not your job to repay someone who's hurt you. God can take care of those things. So we ought not to repay repay evil for evil. If you're holding a grudge against someone, I promise you, this is what's going to happen. That grudge is going to eat you up. From the inside, it's going to tear you down. So you don't respond, don't hold grudges, don't respond with evil for evil. But we have a right response. And this is the divine response. And that response is to repay good for evil. Now you say, I can't do that. That's a hard thing to do. How am I going to do that? It it hurts so much when people are against me, when they do bad things against me. How can I respond by giving good for evil? You can't do it. You're right about that. Only Jesus can react that way. And Jesus did react this way, and Jesus is able to help you. And so if you want to respond in this way, you've got to have the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one thing about Jesus, he was a person who always practiced what he preached. And you know what he preached? He said it in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you. Now I want you to think about this a moment. I want you to go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to put yourself in Malchus' sandals. Let's think about what Malchus was doing. Now here you are, you're Malchus, and you're part of the religious mafia in Jerusalem. And you have it in your mind that Jesus is a fraud, he's a fake, and if you come out against him, if you capture him, if you kill him, then you're actually doing people a favor. I mean, after all, he's a fraud, he's a fake. And so you go into the garden and you're expecting that there's going to be a confrontation. Suddenly there's a flash. You see something coming towards your head, you move, you dodge to get out of the way, and as you do, you feel a quick twinge of pain. And you notice that your ear is laying down on the ground in a pool of blood. And in that very moment, you're thinking, my life is never going to be the same. I'm going to have to go through the rest of my life with one ear. 25 years ago, I cut off this finger on my hand. 
17 hours of Merck microsurgery later, taking blood vessels and veins, they took a nerve out of my arm right here and put it into my finger, three skin grafts, six months of rehabilitation. That's what it took for me to keep this finger right here. But when Jesus healed this man, he reached down, picked up that ear, stuck it back on his head, and the blood blood supply like that was completely replenished. All the nerves are back. All the feeling is back. Everything is perfectly done. Jesus healed this man. Now, I want you to think for a minute. Let's suppose that if Jesus had not reached down and picked up that ear and put it back on that man. Suppose he'd not done that. Do you know that Malchus would have gone around through the rest of his life explaining what happened to his ear? And he'd be saying, you know, there was this hot-headed fellow who was a, 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 a disciple of that rascal Jesus. And he did this to me. And I wonder if there aren't a lot of people today that Christians have hurt, and that's what they're going around saying. Those followers of Jesus, those people who claim to be Christians, those people who say they're this or they're that, look what they did to me. What if he hadn't healed him? But Jesus touched that that ear, and he healed him. He picked it up. Now, the Bible doesn't say that he actually picked it up. I'm the one who said he picked it up. The Bible doesn't say that. I don't know. Maybe he picked it up, but he could have just touched the side of his head, made a completely new ear. I don't know. But whatever happened, right then, Malchus was healed. And you know something, folks? I have no doubt in my mind that Malchus changed his mind about Jesus at that very moment. He saw what Peter did, but he also saw what Jesus did. And in that moment, I'm sure he must have thought, Jesus is who he says he is. Fellas, we're making a mistake here. He's not a fraud. He's not a fake. He really is the Son of God. And I can imagine that that Malchus withdrew from that mob. He said, I can't participate in this. Now, some of you, you may have been hurt by a disobedient Christian, and you think that Jesus stuff, all of that religious stuff, that's no good. This Christianity thing is a fraud. But I promise you this, you'll change your mind when Jesus touches your life. You'll change your mind. Now, this was an enemy. He came out to arrest Jesus and to take him to the cross. But here we find Jesus shows him grace and compassion. And what Jesus was doing was repaying good for evil. Whenever people pick up stones to throw at you, don't pick them back up. Don't pick up the same stones and throw them back. That's the wrong response. The book of Romans says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Do you know that you'll surprise your enemies if you repay evil with good? They'll be surprised by that. And the Bible says they'll feel shame. How do you react to your enemies? Do you sheath your sword or do you pull out your sword? Do you try to hurt them like they've hurt you? Here's the third question I want to ask you this morning. What do you do when God's will is unpleasant. Let's look at verse number 11 again. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Verse number 11, we have two powerful pictures. There's a contrast here. We have two different items. We have a sword and there's a cup. The sword represents rebellion. The sword represents doing your will instead of God's will reacting in the flesh instead of in the spirit. But the cup represents acceptance of God's will. The cup is where you 
do what God wants you to do. And there's always two ways that you can go in the crisis. Either you can decide that you're going to deal with the sword or you're going to deal with the cup. Now, first, here's what can happen to you. You can decide that you're going to swing the sword. That's our way, isn't it? We're going to swing the sword. I mean, you can pull out that sword. You can rant and rave. You can get mad. You can start flailing away. You can act in disobedience. And you say, this is the way it's going to be. It's going to be my way or no way. And you can react in that way. And when you do, people will get the wrong impression about Christians and consequently the wrong impression about the Christ that we serve. You could decide that you're going to swing the sword. And just like Malchus There may be people who are walking away from Christians and saying, look what they did to me. Look what that Christian did. Look how he acted. And so you leave people trying to explain what happened. So you can choose the sword, or next, you can drink the cup. God's way is to drink the cup. That's God's will. Now, for Christ, we know it was a cup of suffering. We know that Jesus drank the bitter dregs of that cup all the way down to the bottom. God's will was that Jesus would go to the cross and he would become a sacrifice for sin. God's will was that hell's fury would be thrown against Jesus. God's will was for Jesus to die on that cross, writhing in agony and pain for the sins of men. But Jesus obeyed the Father's will and he drank the cup. And in that reaction, Jesus showed his true character. His reputation, all of the people knew, because those were his actions. He went around doing good. He he talked about good things. He was a good teacher. But his reaction is what showed his real character. And what was his reaction? He showed that what he was went all the way through and through. He was color fast, all the way down into the inside. He never said, he never did anything that wasn't in the Father's will. So he was genuine in it all. Now, I want to ask you about this today. Are you standing the test of character? Are you a Christian who does God's will? Are you insisting that you're going to swing the sword, yet you'll hurt when people hurt you? Or do you have the character of Jesus? Have you drunk the cup of God's will? Now, I want to ask you today about four cups that you really need to drink. If you are concerned about doing God's will and you want to be a person who does God's will, you need to drink these four cups. The first cup is a cup of salvation. You need to drink the cup of salvation. God's will is that you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The cup of salvation means that you believe that Jesus went to that cross, that he died there for your sins, that he went into the tomb, and on the third day he arose for your justification. You must believe that. To do the will of God, you must drink that cup of salvation. The second thing that you need to do is you need to drink the cup of baptism. That's obedience to God's will. Now, all of us know that baptism doesn't save you, has nothing at all with make, do with making you a saved person. It doesn't change you from death into life. Salvation does that. But baptism is commanded by God. We don't have an option for this. God says that we ought to be baptized. And we're showing in a picture what Jesus has done for that, done for us. That's not optional. Now, I know some people will say, well, I'm too old to get baptized. I'm too embarrassed to get baptized. You know, I deal with that sometimes. People say, well, I just can't go up there to the baptistry because all those people are looking at me. I'm embarrassed if I go into the baptismal waters. What would you be embarrassed of? Do you know that every person who sits out here and watches a person get baptized is thinking, praise God, 
There's somebody who's trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they're showing it in a picture. That's not something to be embarrassed about. It's something to praise the Lord over. It's a great ordinance that God has given us. But I want you to understand something. Baptism has to be administered by the right authority. Not just anybody can baptize. Those of you who are members of our church, you know what we believe about that. We believe that the New Testament authority is under the auspices of the Baptist church. And that's why we baptize everybody who comes to us. So you have to have this proper authority. And authority comes through New Testament, the New Testament church. Then the third thing, the third cup that you must drink is the cup of the church. If you're a born-again believer in Christ, you ought to be a member of the Lord's church. Do you see that in the New Testament that there's no such thing as freelance Christians? There's no such thing as Christians just doing what they want to do and not being attached to anybody. No, all the Christians that we find in the New Testament became members of the Lord's church. And when you become a Christian, you need to become a part of God's church because that's where the Lord does his work. His work is carried out through his church. There aren't any other organizations. There, aren't, there isn't any place else to go to do God's work except God's church. Now, I run across people all the time that say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm a member of that great universal invisible body in the sky of Jesus Christ. The New Testament doesn't know anything at all about a universal, invisible body of Christians. As far as I can tell, I can see every one of you here. We're all in the body, and the church is local and visible, and the Berean Baptist Church is one of the Lord's New Testament bodies, New Testament churches. And if you're a child of God, you ought to be a member of the Lord's church because that's where his work is done. So once you've drunk that cup, drunk the cup of being in the church, then the next thing that you need to do is to drink the cup of service. Every Christian needs to have a job in your church. There there needs to be some way, and I'll preach about this again a a little bit later in a couple weeks, there needs to be some way that you can point to something and say that this is how I intentionally serve God in my church. You need a ministry in your church, and you need to start that today. This is God's revealed will. So here's what you have, folks. You have the cup or you have the sword. The question is, will it be disobedience or will it be obedience? Will you drink the cup that God has given? Salvation, baptism, the church, service. You need to drink all those cups if you're going to be in the will of God. I want to ask you today, have you drunk those cups? Do you need to drink those cups right now? In just a moment, we're going to give an invitation to him, and that's a time for people to make decisions. It's a time that people can come and come up here and tell us, well, yes, I I need to be a member of the church, or yes, I need to be baptized, or yes, pastor, I need to find some avenue of service in my church. Maybe it's time for you to do that. I want to ask you today, have you made the right decision? Have you drunk the cup of God's will? Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we ask you, Lord, that you would put the willingness into our heart that we don't have by ourselves to do these things that you've commanded. There's no way that we can do these things in our own strength. Our human bodies, our human mind, our human will doesn't allow us to do that. It's only when the Holy Spirit comes in and touches our heart that we're able to do what you command. I pray for someone here today that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them. They've been resisting. They've been fighting it. But now's the time to say, I surrender to you, Lord. I come to you. Jesus paid it all, and I recognize that. 
Heavenly Father, I just pray that you'd speak to some heart today. Send your Holy Spirit upon us. Salvation, baptism, church membership, service. Maybe there's somebody here today who needs to make that decision. Bring that person to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.